Thank you, Josh and Krista, for leading us in our scripture reading. Well, good morning. I want to thank you to begin. Thank you for your prayers this week. Many of you know that I have had some thyroid issues lately, and they decided that they needed to take a biopsy, so I'm tie-free today to recover from that little procedure. And uh, as you're aware, when you hear that word biopsy, that always creates a, a little, uh, get your attention, doesn't it? So uh, we're praying and trusting that uh, things are, are well, and certainly keep keep sharing and let you be informed of how you can pray. And as I'm reminded, each of us, I've talked to several today that have had procedures recently, they're anticipating some things going on, again reminded that these earthen vessels that we have are just temporary vessels. And we have the hope and faith in Christ that, that as we deal with the struggles of these earthen vessels, that one day we have the hope in Christ of a resurrected eternal body that we will be celebrating and living in eternity with Him and with each other. So again, thank you for your prayers. Today we continue with our Easter theme. As you're aware, we have reflected over these last weeks on the third day, climaxing last Sunday on Easter Sunday, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave on the third day. But church, the good news is that Easter is not just about a day a year. Easter is about resurrection living, what we called last week, first day living for the rest of our lives. When God comes and speaks life and light into our lives from this day forward. Well, it's fascinating and it's interesting that as we continue with the story of the, the gospel of the early church, its birth, and we're introduced to Saul, what we discover is that on the third day, the scales fell from Saul's eyes and he began a new way of living and proclaiming the good news of Christ in a way that he could not have imagined. So church, even after Easter, third day living continues. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 9 and we're going to uh, pick up on the story of Saul's conver conversion. Now, our, our scripture reading today has already begun to introduce us to Saul. What we discover about Saul is that he is a man who is a Pharisee. In fact, it's in the book of Philippians, I believe chapter 3, that Saul describes his heritage and his background, saying that he is a Pharisee, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and that he is one with zeal. Such zeal that he would persecute the church. Now, of course, Saul would have been versed in, in the Old Testament, in the proclamation that Yahweh is the one true God, and that the children of Israel, the people of God, were chosen to be a light and a witness of the one true God to all the peoples of the world. And that through this people, through the people of Abraham, that one day a Messiah would come and bring salvation to all. And so as we talk about Saul being a man of great zeal, described as the one who persecuted the church, it's helpful for us to reflect on some of the, the, the men of the Old Testament, the men of Israel's past who were also men of great zeal. I think of Elijah, the prophet of great zeal who, who challenged the prophets of Baal who had the showdown between Baal and Yahweh, and it was Elijah who defeated the prophets of Baal. I'm reminded of Phinehas, the son of Aaron, 
who saw that God and God's people were, were being infiltrated and were being uh, come against as the, the gods of the false gods were coming into the people of Israel. And it was Phineas who stood up and defeated those who would try to come against God and became a great priest, high priest for Israel. I think of Judas Maccabeus who in that intertestamental time stood up against Antiochus Epiphanes and overthrew the Seleucids, allowing the Israelites to have a, another period of time, although brief, but a period where they alone ruled in their homeland. These three men in particular demonstrate the kind of zeal that the Apostle, the Apostle Paul, that Saul as we encounter him in Acts chapter 7 would have had. He had a zeal for God. He had a, a zeal for Yahweh. He had a zeal for God's people of protecting and living by the, the Torah, the law, of protecting and living according to the, the worship of the temple. And he was passionate and zealous against anyone or anything that would come against the Torah and the temple. And it was Jesus and it was the followers of the way that had caught his attention and, and they thought they had dealt with this problem. They had thought that the Pharisees thought they had, had removed Jesus and his followers from the scene with his crucifixion. And yet this Jesus, this, this way would not go away. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen, one of the first deacons of the early church, is being put to death, is preaching the gospel. And in Acts chapter 7, we see that, that there is Saul, a young man collecting the, the robes of those who were, were actually stoning Stephen, putting Stephen to death. And the scripture tells us that Saul was in favor of that in eight, chapter 8, chapter 1, that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. In verse 3, the story continues that Saul was ravaging the church because of the threat he felt that they were against Yahweh, because of the threat they were against the temple and against the law and against all that the Israelites were about. And he was zealous to persecute and to do all that he could to do away with this heretical group within the church or within the temple and within uh, Judaism. In chapter 26 of Acts, verse 11, Saul, giving his own testimony, says this. He said that he was committed to punishing them and was furiously enraged at these Christians. And now as we turn to Acts chapter 9, the scripture says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, still with that zeal against the followers of the way to do away with them so that they could protect the temple and protect the Torah. And Saul had gone to get papers from the high priest, papers that gave him permission to extradite to extradite any followers of the way that he might find in, in the synagogues, even of, of surrounding neighboring countries and, and cities and communities. And Saul, with those orders and those papers in hand, began to make his way to Damascus to arrest followers of the way. Of course, as we continue to read that story, we see that, that as Saul approached Damascus, that some kind of experience took place. Now, what I would picture is that Paul, Saul is, and let me just pause there. 
Saul is the Hebrew reference to, to Paul. Paul is the Greek reference. And so the Saul and the Paul would be like a Joe and a Jose, okay? It's the same person, it's just the different culture and context. So sometimes we would say Saul in the early context is he's relating specifically to the Hebrew people. And then as he moves into his missionary movement and activity, he becomes more and more known as Paul because that's the Greek culture in which he was serving and ministering in. So at this time, the scripture refers to him as Saul. As Saul is walking, there's, there's a good chance that as a Pharisee, that he would not allow himself to be associated with the, the guards that would be with him, the temple guards who would be under the authority of the Sadducees. And we know the Sadducees and the Pharisees disagreed on everything except their common enemies, which would be Jesus and his followers. So, so you can imagine the picture in this long journey of the, the temple guards being back behind at a distance from Saul because he would not communicate, he would not converse with them on this long journey. So Saul was out front leading the way, having time to reflect. It was a long journey. It would have taken them several days to, to travel from Jerusalem to Damascus. And so here we have Saul out front of, of the group, the soldiers that were, the guards that were with him. And all of a sudden there's a, a bright light. And the scripture tells us that the guards did not see, but they could hear a voice. And there Saul has this encounter with the resurrected Lord. Now what happened to Saul? What, what took place now, now, let's not get too bogged down into the specifics of what happened because what we know is that whatever took place, it absolutely changed and transformed Saul's life forever. Now, some would suggest that maybe he had some kind of an epileptic seizure or something like that. Maybe some would suggest he had a heat stroke. Some might suggest that as they were coming out of the mountain range of Mount Hermon, coming down into the lower areas and the more arid and, and uh, dry areas of Damascus, that those violent storms that would take place in that range, that maybe he was struck by lightning or something like that. But again, that is, that's, that's the physical activity or happening is minor to the profound change that immediately caused him to leave everything behind. And in that moment, in that experience, whatever took place in that moment, Saul heard his name called out from the heavens. Saul, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul, knowing that something spiritual, something divine is going on, asks the question, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? And the Lord responds, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. I am the one that you are persecuting. Now get up and go and you will be told what to do. The one who was telling everyone what to do, the one who was in control, the one who had power, the one who was manipulating the situation, now found himself blind and helpless and told, you go and you will be told what to do. Now some of you, some interesting things textually are, are taking place here. In chapter 4, excuse me, in verse 4, if you have a King James Version, especially an older King James Version, you'll see that there's, there's something after, added after, why are you persecuting me? If you would, turn to chapter 26, verse 14. 
Again, this is that passage where Paul is, is giving his testimony to Agrippa. And here we have what is included in some of your, your texts, some of your passages in, in chapter 9. Saul, Saul, is, as Saul is recounting his testimony, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that phrase is found here in the text, and it was inserted in the text in Acts chapter 9, but the earlier manuscripts we have found, that passage, that, that phrase is not in the Acts chapter 9 passage, so our newer translations will not include that in chapter 9 as an, as an insertion, but obviously it continues to be here in chapter 26. But it does add some insight to us in trying to understand Paul's experience here on the road to Damascus. So what does this phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, mean? Well, have you ever been goaded? Have you ever been goaded? You know what that means? It means to be prodded. It means to be poked. It means to be pricked. Maybe in the context that we would, would talk about it, it means to be goaded into doing something that maybe you don't really want to do, right? Maybe you'd be made fun of a little bit or, or picked at a little bit or maybe, maybe even bullied a little bit, right? You'd be goaded into that. Some of you have that reference in, in working with cattle or, or livestock, right? You'd have a, a prong, you'd have a, 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 a stick or some kind of a, a cane that you would use to poke and to prod livestock with to, to direct them. I'll never forget, we, uh, growing up uh, many years ago, and we had gone to the co-op store, and we'd gone to get some feed, and, and my dad uh, had some land, we had some cattle that we would kind of keep up with, gave us something to do. And uh, I was looking around, and there was these new cattle prods. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And so I went up, and, you know, being a, a dumb teenager that I was at the time, I went up, and I picked up that prod, and I had one hand on one end and one hand on the other. And I didn't realize that the batteries were in it, and it was fully charged. And I pushed that button, and the fire went through me, <laughs> and I had an encounter right there. So I know what it's like to be prodded, right? When you get prodded, you, you, you're, you're directed, you're, you're pushed. And isn't it interesting here, this, this picture that, that, that the Scripture offers us, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul, it's, it's hard for you to continue to fight against the, the goads. It's hard for you to continue to fight against the pricks and the promptings and the stings of my presence in your life. Saul, it's hard to continue to fight against the promptings of my spirit in your life. Saul, it's hard to continue to fight with that stirring, that conviction, that conscience that's going on deep within. As you persecute my people, as you act against me, there's something within you that just isn't sitting right. There, there's a prod, there's a pricking, there's something going on that, that's causing you an uneasiness and an unsettledness. Why are you persecuting me when what's going on inside is you're being goaded, you're being pricked about what I'm doing? Pricked as he watched Stephen being put to death. 
And as Stephen cried out, maybe even looking Saul in the eye, God, forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. Pricked. As Saul probably thought, now that that Stephen's been put to death, James the Apostle is, is, is being put to death in Acts chapter 12. The church is scattering. Maybe we're through with this finally, and now the relentlessness, the faithfulness of Christians in Damascus, in all these other cities, the Christians are still being faithful. The prick, how can these people, we're, we're putting them to death, how can they continue to be faithful to this Christ? Maybe the, the prodding, the pricking from Gamaliel. Remember, Gamaliel was one of the lead Pharisees of the day. He mentored Saul. He taught Saul what it meant to be a Pharisee. And if you remember earlier in the book of Acts, Gamaliel said, now, wait a minute, let, let's, let's not get too carried away. Because if what Peter and John are saying, if, if what these followers of Jesus are saying is true, we don't want to be against them. Let's, let's not put them to death. Let's not, let's not throw them in prison forever and lock the key and throw away the key. But rather, let's, let's just warn them and let's not be found to, to be against God just in case this is of God. The proddings, the goadings, the pricking of the Spirit of God in Saul's heart and mind as he made that long journey by himself, reflecting, thinking, oh, and by the way, Did you know that the road from Jerusalem to Damascus goes through Galilee? Goes through Nazareth? Goes through all these places where Jesus lived and performed miracles. And you can just imagine the the stirrings and the promptings of the Spirit of God. Saul, how can you be persecuting me when, when the goads of the Lord are there all around you and you can't kick against them forever? And in that moment... Saul encountered the resurrected and risen Lord. And he gave his life, he surrendered his life to him. And for us today, maybe for you today, has the Spirit of God been pricking and goading at your heart? Has the Spirit of God continued to to kick against you and you've rebelled and you've backed away And the word that the Spirit may not use today is, why are you persecuting me? But but maybe the Spirit of God today would come and say, why are you ignoring me? Or why are you disobeying me as I goad your spirit, as I, I goad your heart and your mind? Why? Why? Saul, Saul, why? Why? You can't continue to kick against the goads. And there in that encounter with the Spirit of God, Saul gave his life to Christ. And Acts chapter 9 tells us that Saul was three days without sight. Three days without sight. Could we say that Paul was three days in the tomb? Three days in the tomb where the most powerful man in the area became the most powerless where Saul became blind and broken and helpless. 
The scripture tells us praying. Praying, and I believe trying to come to grips with the truth that Jesus, this one that he had given his life to prove and demonstrate, could never be the Messiah. Now, coming to the place in his life, the reality into grips with the truth that Jesus is indeed Messiah. The scripture tells us that blind, he's led by these guards to a house owned by a man named Judas. And there in that house, we see the transition. The transition from from the temple guards. The transition from his old way of life to sit there in the home of Judas and to wait and to wait until someone comes to get him. And someone comes to get and to welcome him into a new way of life. The hands that bore the sword now became the hands that needed guidance. The persecutor would now become the persecuted. As we share and as we talk the rest of the story, we see that one of the first things that, G- that Saul does, one of the first things that he does is go to the synagogue, to go to the synagogue where they're waiting on him. They're waiting on him to come and to arrest the followers of Christ. And the first thing that Saul does is when he gains his consciousness, he regains his sight as he goes to the synagogue and he says this, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. And they're going, wow, what what happened to Saul? We would have never expected this. But for now, Saul sits in the home of a man named Judas on the street called Straight, waiting for someone to come and show him what he must do. And as often happens, In stories like Saul, it's required that another person come alongside. Another person hear and receive and respond to the calling of Christ in their life. And here we have a man named Ananias. And the voice of the Lord goes out to Ananias and says, Ananias! And Ananias simply says, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. You see, when God calls us by name, He calls us to get up and to go. When God God called Abram by name, He said, get up and go to a land that I will show you. When God called Moses by name, He said, get up and go to Pharaoh so that I can set my people free. And now the same Spirit of God comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, yes, Lord, I'm here. Go. Go to Saul. Go to the street called Straight into the house of Judas. And there you will find Saul. But Ananias goes, wait a minute, Lord. There's a man named Saul coming from Jerusalem. And the city's all abuzz about him coming to arrest me and to arrest the fellow believers and disciples of Jesus. Are you sure about this? And the Lord says, yes, go. Isn't it interesting that the name Ananias means the Lord is gracious. Typically, biblical names reflect on that person. So whatever we would know or not know of Ananias' past, what we can assume is that the Lord had been gracious to him. The Lord had poured His grace and His mercy upon Ananias 
so that when Ananias heard the word, go, Ananias said, yes, Lord. And so the one called the Lord is gracious went to find Saul, the persecutor of the church. And you can imagine the hesitancy on Ananias and, and the Saul not knowing what was in front of him. The door knocks and the door, the, the, he knocks on the door and the door opens up. And in that encounter with Saul, the first thing that Ananias says, the first thing that Ananias says to the one who's come to arrest and even kill him is this. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Saul. You've come to kill us, but you need to understand that you're part of our family. You are part of the family of Christ. You are part of the church. And the first thing that, that Ananias says to his enemy is he calls him a part and a member of his family. What an incredible testimony and message and witness that those who would come against the church, those who would come against believers, when the Spirit of God enters their life, are no longer enemies, but they become brothers and sisters in Christ. And Ananias says, Paul, I've come to, to lay my hands on you. And I've come to pray over you. And the Scripture says that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. Isn't it interesting? That scales, scales are used to describe Saul's conversion. Scales, scales, that which snakes and dragons possess. Did you know that snakes have a scale over their eye? It's an ocular scale called the brill that covers their eyes. Do you remember in the New Testament that the Pharisees, first by John the Baptist, and then by Jesus, are called a brood of vipers. Do you remember that from the very beginning, Satan is described as a serpent? And now, in this moment of conversion, in this moment of transformation, the Scripture tells us that the scales from the eyes of Saul fall. The scales, not just from his eyes, but the scales from his heart fall away. Saul is no longer a serpent. He's no longer a, a part of the brood of vipers. For the scales have fallen. And he can see clearly now with his eyes and with his heart. He knows and believes and trusts that Jesus is Lord, Son of God, and in the next verse, the Scripture tells us that he got up and was baptized. You see, baptism was and continues to be the outward symbol of identifying with God's people. Baptism continues to be the biblical way to profess and to picture God's saving work in our lives. But what about baptism for Saul? Baptism for Saul was, was an accumulation of all these things. For you see, Saul was a Jew, and for, Jew, for Jews, baptism was a picture of cleansing. But Saul would have also been familiar with the preaching of John the Baptist. And for John the Baptist, baptism was an act of repentance, of turning away from an old way of life and committing to a, a new way of life. And of course, the church now was practicing baptism 
Baptism to celebrate that on the third day that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and now has victory over death. And all who will come and believe and receive the Spirit of God can share in that testimony as well. So Saul, in that moment, his first response was, I want to be baptized. And there Ananias baptized Saul. And you? What hinders and keeps you from being baptized today? What keeps you from, by faith, professing Christ as Lord and following Him in baptism to demonstrate and to show God's cleansing and cleaning power, to demonstrate and show that you have repented from your sin and from the old way of life, and to demonstrate and profess to the world that just as Jesus Christ came up out of the grave, as you would come up out of those baptismal waters, that you too would profess a hope in life eternal and victory over death in this life. You see, church, today is about the third day, the day of conversion. Have you experienced conversion? Of course, that's a nice 25-cent church word, isn't it? What does the word conversion mean? I've shared with some of my friends at the seminary that we need a contemporary articulation of what the word conversion means for our culture and for our people today. Lloyd Ogilvie provides this idea that I'm really chewing on and would encourage us to, to focus on a well he, as well. He calls conversion a reorientation of the soul from the deep dis-ease within. Isn't that a powerful word picture? It's a reorientation of our soul from the deep dis-ease, disease, dis-ease within, the dis-ease caused from our sin, the dis-ease caused from the result of that sin, the deaths in our lives, the dis-ease that's caused from separation in our lives, the goadings and promptings of the Spirit of God calling us to a reorientation of our soul, of our heart that can only be met in Christ Jesus. Conversion is a turning, a, it's a repentance, a recognition that the old way was the wrong way. Saul proclaiming and professing that the old way was the wrong way and that now in Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of the old way. It is the new way to live today. So much so that, Christ, that, that Paul proclaimed in Philippians 1 that to live is Christ. Church, we need an understanding of conversion in our world today. That God takes the initiative in our lives, not in a way that impinges our free will, but in a way that invites us to respond. That God prepares us through the goads and the, the pricks and the prods of life, and it creates within us a deep dis-ease upon which only God can fill and meet and resolve. That God creates within us not a declaration of independence, but rather calls us into greater interdependence upon Him and upon His people. You see, church, today on the third day, the Lord calls us by name. How will you answer? How will you answer when the Lord calls you by name? On day one and day two, we may respond this way. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Who are you? But on day three, on the third day, 
as the Lord calls our name, we can confess and cry out, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. And the Lord would say to us, Get up and go. Get up and be baptized. Get up and go and serve. Get up and go and help and love and teach others. Today is the third day. Today is the day that God calls our names. Will you respond, here I am, Lord? Or maybe today you would ask the question, who are you, Lord? And maybe today we could begin to answer that question for you. Is today the third day in your life? As you hear the Spirit of God call your name, how will you respond? Let's pray.